So we need an opportunity to explore break glass scenarios. What are patterns and frameworks that we need to actually fix our systems, even if the automation isn't there for us? Welcome to the Open at Intel podcast, where we're all about open source, from software to security to innovation and beyond. I'm your host, Catherine Druckmann, an open source evangelist at Intel, bringing you leading edge, free ranging conversations from some of the best minds in the open source community. Let's get into it. I spoke with Rosemary Wang of HashiCorp, author of Infrastructure's Code, Patterns and Practices, While at All Things Open. I learned all about automation and Infrastructure's Code, and I invite you to join me along the way. So hey, Rosemary, thank you so much for joining me here on the show floor at All Things Open. Thanks for having me. This is pretty exciting. It's like open air. Get a I nice know, conversation yeah, going. it's really nice. I, you know, I've never actually been to this conference. That's a, that's this is my really? first time. Yeah. Oh well, welcome. I've been in the open source world for well longer than I care to admit, frankly, um, and I've never made it here for one reason or another. And uh, yeah, it's a great it's a great energy. It is. It, this is one of my favorite open source conferences. A lot of people say that. Yeah. Yeah. It is. I've been here. I think four times. I, I want to say four times. Um, and every time, the quality of like the the content, but also the people that you meet, I get to learn so much outside of my space usually, mm -hmm. um, and I get to learn about what people are thinking about. And the community is also just really well uh, involved in general, you know, with technology in general. So it's yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. So, so you're giving a talk here, and it's about automation. Your expertise is infrastructure as code, which is something that, well. If you work in software, you've probably touched this sometime, <laughs> and maybe you've had a little frustration or difficulty, maybe with your automation. Yes. And I, you know, I, I'm guessing that's something you're going to get to in your talk. I wonder if you could just kind of give us a little quick overview of what you'll be talking about. Sure. By the time this is out, I think people can go check out. Yes. The full, the full yeah. version. So this is the least discussed operational pattern. We just really don't think about because you can build all this automation and I came from sort of a mixed background of network engineering, software engineering and a little bit of everything and as a software engineer I wanted to build as much code as possible and automate everything, right? Because yeah. it makes it easier, whether it be infrastructure, deployment of applications, security. And what I quickly realized was that people had a fear of automation going wrong and we never yes. actually <laughs> sat and discussed what it meant to break glass, meaning if automation did go wrong. In case of emergency. In case of emergency, we had to get in and do something, right? And we never really thought about that because we were so busy trying to build, we never thought about how we were going to escape hatch ourselves uh, if automation was uh, problematic or we had a failure that we couldn't fix by automation. And anybody who does automation quickly realizes that the patterns that you use to automate something don't really apply in certain scenarios. So a good example of this is, let's say a database goes horribly, you know, just goes horribly wrong. You can't recover it. No amount of automation is going to no. fix your old database. And maybe you can create a new one and migrate all of the data over, and you're lucky if that happens, but even that isn't fully automated either. So we need an opportunity to explore break glass scenarios. What are patterns and frameworks that we need to actually fix our systems, even if the automation isn't there for us. And so the whole, the whole talk is about the patterns and the frameworks behind how we understand breaking glass. Where do we identify uh, when automation has gone wrong? How do we dive into these layers of automation that we have today? And where can we explore manual access to a system? And how do we do it safely and securely? I really identify with everything you just said. Even, you know, I, I don't 
not necessarily my expertise, but having built software, there is always that, of course, there's a desire to auto- automate all the things, right? Be efficient and hardworking, but there's a little bit of an anxiety. There's a little bit of a, there is always that kind of fear of taking your hands away. It's a lack of control. Oh my God, exactly. right? Yeah. And having, having contingency plans is always a good idea. I love that you mentioned break glass scenarios because it's a very accurate um, kind of mental picture of what, what happens when things go wrong and you panic. And I wondered if, if just kind of we could step back a little bit and, and talk before we address the problems, right? Before we address what happens when, when something goes wrong, I thought you, maybe you could tell us a little bit about some common pitfalls that people run into. Like what, what are the things that people get wrong a lot when they're automating various software engineering systems? Uh, That's a great question. And it's the one rule that we forget. When we automate, we forget about this rule of idempotence, right, or idempotence. Um, Idempotence is the idea that in automation, you can reapply the automation and the same state will exist. So a good example of this is that, you know, I came from network engineering. A good example of this is that I could run a script that says, make this interface and then shut down and restart, right? the interface so that the new configuration applies. However, if I run that script again, it will configure the interface again, and it will restart the switch again, which means it disrupts everything. Why should I restart the switch if the configuration is already correct? Um, And so this idea of idempotence is if the configuration of something, software, infrastructure, platform resources, if it's the same, I don't need to rerun that automation again. I shouldn't have to change the state of the system just to take it take it over again. So I think that idempotence is one thing we forget when we automate because we're so busy writing code. We don't remember that there's sort of a pre-existing state. It's the same thing yeah. as if you're doing like a create, read, update, delete. If you don't read to determine what the state is before you update, no. you're just going to be reapplying like, the same configuration and potentially disrupting the system. Right. And so this applies, interestingly enough, across network switches. If you're automating them, it applies to Kubernetes controllers or operators if you're building them. It implies to any kind of automation you do, and that's the what I say is the golden rule of automation. So that's the com- most common pitfall I see. The second common pitfall that I see tends to be a l- lack of testing, and there's only so much you can do when you test your automation. Um, but understanding if you can divide it into create, read, update, and delete operations, breaking them down into those four actions, and testing across those four actions in the combination of create, read, update, delete, tends to actually yield pretty stable automation overall. Um, you're still going to get edge cases in where your automation will break because you didn't test it or someone is doing a combination or some configuration that is not expected or not part of the original system, right? So yeah. there's something that you're going to have, some cases, edge cases you'll have there. But for the most part, if you break down into those four actions, like a database, you'll be pretty uh, established in a, a piece of resilient and stable automation that you could you build. What are, I mean, expanding on that, uh, on that a little bit, you know, once you have an automated system in place, right, you have your processes, what are some areas where you may need to more frequently revisit and sort of audit, inspect, figure out what's going wrong and what needs to be improved? So some areas that you go in and you can inspect a little bit more about, um, usually those tends to be, tend to be old automation, right? Automation, mm-hmm itself is software and software has entropy over time. So typically what happens is that you go back and you re-inspect your automation, you re-inspect these different areas. After a certain amount of time has passed, 
And that's because there are going to be different patterns in your system, different applications running, you know, even different AP infrastructure APIs if you're automating against certain infrastructure. So you'll always have to revisit that and reinspect what's going on. And you're going to eventually hit a corner case or an edge case if you don't constantly do this iterative auditing of what your automation is doing, you know, what's, who's accessing what part of which system in your automation, because even automation should have least privilege access. Um, you don't want your automation having admin access across the board. And that will change uh, no matter what kind of software you're writing as well. So looking carefully at entropy over time as well as access over time is really important. So I, I, I like to kind of drive home the idea that, that the earlier in any process you address certain things, the better, right? And automation probably to an extent is similar. The earlier you start implementing best practices and doing things the right way, in any field, the better. And I wondered what, if you had anything, maybe any advice for, for early early career engineers, people who are just getting into the field and are kind of just now exploring using automation. Maybe they've read your book, by the way. Can we plug your book a little bit? <laughs> They're just exploring, yeah, you know, yeah. using infrastructure as code properly. Mm -hmm. I wonder what advice you might have for them. So what I would say is when you start thinking about infrastructure as code, Learn the software development practices. I think if I were to go back and do it again, um, I would have started with the software development practices. And I don't have to be the best software engineer or the best, and you don't have to like program in the most amazing and up-to-date languages. But recognizing what are the practices people do use um, to make and push software to production. Mm -hmm. A lot of that maps to infrastructure uh, and infrastructure as code that we have today. And those are the, the sort of early foundations that provide you a better way to step up, right, your infrastructure automation game, right, if you do go into the space. The second thing that I would say is learn about, well, declarative, the declarative theory, right, of a de having a declarative language in infrastructure. Declarative is, a declarative versus imperative is a big argument that we have in general in software. And the thought is that declarative describes the end state. So I want X, Y, Z. And the system will try to get to XYZ however way it chooses. That's what automation, something like Terraform will do, for example, or any other infrastructure as code that you'll see. Um, so usually we program in an imperative way. So we say, we want this state, this state XYZ, and eventually we'll get there. But nowadays we're moving toward a declarative configuration. This is something you'll see in Kubernetes and you'll see in many, many other tools. So. The, the point is, we're getting to a place where we want someone else to write all of the logic <laughs> yes. and all of the automation for us to get to the right end state. Um, and so you have to balance the interest of saying, okay, I understand what, what, how a tool, declarative tool works, but I also need to understand the underlying imperative logic, right? Because it's not always going to go right. Declarative logic will only get you so far, and then eventually you'll have to debug further down the stack <laughs> to sure. identify what it's doing. So, so in other words, basically get, get, get your feet wet in, in some various disciplines mm -hmm. in order to see as big a picture as possible. Yeah. Although this, you know, this is something, again, I, I, I think about because I've, I've been around a little while, yeah. right? And, and the way that we make software has changed quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And it is increasingly complex and increasingly impossible to really see an entire picture of everything as it fits together. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and, and the infrastructure supporting it. I wonder if you, if you just had any thoughts on that, about how, one, uh, how do you find your space in the, wor in, in the world of the, the software you know, life cycle? 
and, and, and how do you get as big a picture as you can in an increasingly complex world? Yeah, I ask a lot of questions. So I am not a security expert, right? And I, right, and I exactly. Will, That's I will a good preface example. this. I'm not a security expert, but I've, I was curious enough to ask a lot of security teams. I ask our internal security teams. I ask the security community, how do I do this better, right? What are ways that we think about this that I don't understand, right? Um, up until maybe six years ago, I didn't really understand what security, you know, what security meant in the context of infrastructure. Sure. This privilege was sort of like, it was a fantasy because we were all just trying to get, get automation in place. Yes, exactly. You're trying uh, to get something done. Exactly. You, you know, yeah. That goes back to yeah. figuring out best practices early yeah, on. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think that asking questions to other people and being open-minded um, across different parts of the life cycle, the software development life cycle, has really helped me. And I think it helps anybody who's trying to get a bigger picture of the space. Um, it's easy to say, okay, infrastructure, I'm going to write this and I'm going to apply it and deploy it in my environment. But it's more important for you to understand sometimes how developers are planning to deploy their applications, right? Um, so expanding on your knowledge and asking a bunch of questions to other people helps you get a better end-to-end -end view. Um, and ultimately, when you're in infrastructure, if you're in infrastructure in general, you're designing for developers, you're designing for security engineers, you're designing for other people. It's mm -hmm. not de deploying infrastructure for the sake of deploying infrastructure. People right. are using it, right? Yes. And if you think about infrastructure as a product, it really helps you recognize where you need to be investigating further and how you get a broader sense of the system. Yeah, I, I think that's great advice. We, we take for granted, right, our own expertise. Yes. We kind of, and we forget that not everybody knows the same thing that we do. And we, you know, and, and having that exchange of, of ideas with people in other disciplines is so valuable, no matter who you are. Yeah. Or where you are in your career, I think. So I wanted to pivot a little bit and just kind of more generally ask you about what you're excited about right now in the open source world. Especially, you come to events like this and, and you get to open your eyes to, to a lot of new, new and exciting trends. Everybody's talking about... Well, I, I'm a little biased. Sometimes I, I, I tend to focus on security, right? I think everybody's talking about software supply chains. Yes. And other people are very aware that everybody's talking about AI. And I just yeah. wonder what, what gets you excited right now. Uh, you know, this is where I feel like I have too many interests. Uh, I can <laughs> and, I, and not enough time and not enough time to explore. Um, but one of, the, uh, one of the things I've been really interested in is actually endpoint access, right? And this okay. thought process behind local to remote development, right? Having done sort of my uh, software engineering experience uh, before, I always had a real issue with how do I develop locally and then uh -huh. push it remotely and make sure it still works. That is um, everyone's yeah, problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and sure. it's everybody, it's a dream, right? Because yeah, there's a cost aspect too. You don't want your development environment anymore. The number of people who have told me, I don't want my development environment. I just want to get rid of it so I can cut costs um, and optimize on my resources and just have everybody do everything locally uh, is, you know, it's a big dream for a lot of folks. Um, but I'm really interested in sort of the open source tool sets that uh, are around this space. Um, so some of them I will not name out loud, uh, okay. unfortunately. But there are some really interesting tools in the space that are about endpoint uh, endpoint access, right? They're what you call privilege access management tools. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they're a little more dynamic than our traditional ones. Um, and so they are open source or they are source available. Um, and what they'll help you do is almost treat a remote environment like an extension of your local machine. So it's pretty popular in Kubernetes, uh, mm -hmm. in the Kubernetes space. I work a lot in that space, but um, you have a local Kubernetes and you can spin up a local Kubernetes and do a bunch of stuff with it if you wanted to. But you could also just have a remote cluster and then access it as if it's a remote endpoint and 
behave as if it's local. Um, and you don't use your resources as a developer locally. Um, and you could also optimize the resources in a development environment um, without necessarily thinking about it. And if you uh, also look at Envoy 2, Envoy is a proxy. Um, there's some really cool things people are doing with Envoy proxy. Uh, highly recommend um, if anybody's in the space of networking uh -huh. uh, to take a look at that. But you can also do, let's say, like, you know, shadowing of different of data or something, and you could split traffic across different areas. So if you are a developer who wants to use data from a certain, you know, a certain database or something, you can use that to split traffic, right, using proxies. So there are a lot of really interesting patterns that no one's really explored, and I think that's the next sort of space that we might be looking at more carefully. Oh, that's very cool. I, I, I appreciate that you, you talked about sort of that, that interesting kind of dance dilemma about, you know, local versus remote environments. I do definitely appreciate the value of various ways of developing remotely. Among them, just consistency, yep. right? You know, yep. if your team's all on the same page with their environment, it makes, it makes things a lot smoother. But there is that, there's a little bit of a, I don't know if it's kind of an old school sense of ownership, right? You kind of want to have everything locally and yeah. your control and, you know, and you're tinkering and all right. of that kind of thing. Yeah. And it's an interesting balance, I think. Yeah. Um, and an interesting conversation to have. It is. And I think it's going to be a challenge no matter which way we look at it. I think there are more and more tool sets that are available, but they're usually specific to an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, I haven't really found an open source tool yet that has a broader uh, perspective across sort of the end-to-end -end you know, here are the different options from a development standpoint, a developer experience standpoint. Let's address all of it. So I'm looking for something in that space. Um, we'll see if that exists or not. But um, I think that's something that we just don't talk about as much. And given that I work in the infrastructure and platform space, you know, that's something of real interest to me. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. What about what, any, anything exciting in, in a hobby? Because I know, you, you know, you probably don't actually have any free time, but <laughs> if you did... <laughs> Uh, I am a plant parent. Really? Um, yes, I have plants, uh, and specifically carnivorous plants. Really? Uh, yeah, I've been taking care That's of them for cool. five to six years now. Um, okay. And I like collecting them. I like, uh, you know, I just like the way that they, the so carnivorous plants are a different kind of um, growth pattern and, and a different sort of methodology than a traditional plant. Um, you can't water it the same. You have to give it the right kind of environment. Uh, and I just really am interested in how they behave. <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, I have to say this. Open source people are the best people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? We, you know, oh, there's a natural curiosity and, and it, it, all of those things kind of work very well together with the open source community mindset, in yeah. my opinion. So exactly. you meet the most interesting people, I think. Yeah. You meet yeah. the most interesting things in open source world. Yeah. I mean, I didn't think that I would ever become obsessed with carnivorous plants, but that became really interesting to me. And uh, now I have my collection going, so I've been cool. learning about how to take care of them for many years now. Uh, I've only killed one, so I think we're okay so far. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, I wondered if, if you might, as, as, we're, uh, as we're kind of wrapping up a little bit, maybe you could plug your book a little bit. Oh, I guess so, I could. <laughs> um, so the book is called Infrastructure as Code, Patterns and Practices. And I wrote it because every time I talked to anybody who was new to the space, getting interested in infrastructure as code, or they were in an organization that had introduced it as a pattern, they were really struggling with how to scale it or how to collaborate on it or how to understand what foundations, the minimum foundations they needed in order to succeed. So this book is what can you do as an individual 
What can your team do and what can your organization do to implement a successful infrastructure as code practice? So there's, of course, the technical aspect of, okay, here's, talk about, let's talk about clean infrastructure as code. Let's talk about what does it mean to do CI/CD for infrastructure as code? And it goes all the way to security, cost optimization, uh, and eventually upgrades, because we just don't talk about upgrading your infrastructure's code or any <laughs> tool set, because, you know, who cares about that? But you eventually do have to upgrade. Yes. Um, you can't put it off forever. No, you can't put it off forever, so eventually you do. So it's a, it's a collection of patterns and practices around how do you scale this and how do you do an infrastructure as code practice, because it's not that easy, um, and you're always going to be changing over time. But hopefully it offers a foundation for you to work on and for you to build on over time as well. Fantastic. I, you know, um, I have a lot of respect for tech authors, so I, I appreciate that you put in some blood, sweat, and tears probably into creating that book for thank the benefit of, of the community. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And, um, I, you know, I, hope, I, think, I think your talk is going to be fantastic. I will figure out if, a way to link it here from the description <laughs> when this eventually goes out. Yeah. And, um, yeah, thank you, and have a, have a great conference. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Open at Intel. Be sure to check out more from the Open at Intel podcast at open.intel.com slash podcast and at Open at Intel on Twitter. We hope you join us again next time to geek out about open source. <laughs>